five years from now, like what would make me a successful VC? That's also a combination of things. It's a mix of uh, having access to the right kind of network, which essentially you know evolves into the right kind of deal flow for a for for a VC. Uh, experience in growing a company from zero to one, and then one to one million, and one hundred, and then billion. Right? Uh, that's an experience that a VC needs to have. How do you sort of grow the board? How do you have the right kind of uh, organizational structure? How do you handle crisis in a company, which happens almost on a weekly basis at that stage? So that's it. So that's something that you got to learn. and this is Changing Careers, a podcast about the changing nature of MBA careers and how MBAs can change their careers. In the last episode, I spoke with Carol Cheung about the venture capital of VC industry in Cambridge. And today, I'm going for a deeper dive. My guest is Hemant Mahapatra. He is someone who has worked in Google and for top VC firms first in the US and now in India. We talked in his office in Bangalore about the experiences that a venture capitalist needs how he made his career plans, and we even got to do a mini book review at the end. As always, we start with an introduction about Hemant and the company he works for, Lightspeed Ventures. So we are a US-based global fund that was initiated in the US. Lightspeed is a venture capital fund that invests in startups at all stages, at all categories. Uh, We began about 20 years ago in the US, and now we've expanded into China, India, and Israel. So in India... Um, we were we have been active in the last since the last ten years. Uh, we recently raised our second fund of 175 million dollars to invest in companies at all stages in all categories in India that have either an India specific focus um, or a global focus that is building out of India. So, what's the difference uh, in terms of the VC scene between the US and India since? Y- you've had a chance to uh, work in a VC in the U.S. as well. So I actually moved, as a, as a bit of a context, I moved back from the U.S. after staying there for 15 years to India only a month ago. In the U.S., I was uh, working for, and I've worked for hardware companies, software companies like Google. I worked for a venture capital firm, a firm called Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, so I've had a you know, fairly good understanding of how companies operate in the U.S., and how startups operate in the U.S., and how even venture capital operates in the U.S. I think when I uh, haven't been here long enough, but what I realized really quickly is the top talent in India is basically the same as top talent anywhere. So the best companies, the best founders, they, they look, talk, uh, you know, think about the business almost exactly the same way as the top people in the U.S. do. Um, the mid-level talent in India is uh, much shallower than the mid-level talent in uh, in the U.S., so that could be because this is a less mature market in terms of entrepreneurship. Uh, it has not been the buzzword, you know, for more than ten years here. Uh, venture capital also has not been, you know, a thing that 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 was very active uh, as as a as a uh, as an asset class uh, ten years ago. So that could be a reason. Um, you would probably find a lot a lot of people that are uh, that are much younger that are very hungry and active. In the entrepreneurship scene, a lot of top senior people are also very active. In the U.S., you also see people, a lot of people at the director level, at the VP level, that are fairly active, and that is something that has not I've not seen as much in India. That said, um, we have recently had some fairly large exits. You know, Flipkart got uh, uh, acquired by Walmart, 
and we expect uh, you know events like these to release a lot of the mid-level uh, talent pool back into the country, and you know they could become angel investors, they could start working for a new startup, they could even start their own company. So we, I expect a, that to improve quite a lot in the next three to five years. So which sectors in India are you most excited by in terms of the kind of uh, potential to really do for, for companies to really do something quite innovative? Yeah, so India, when I look at India from an economic pyramid perspective, I, I see India as a very uh, bottom flat pyramid. So you go, you know, one level down, a lot many more people become accessible to you compared to, let's say, the U.S. where the pyramid seems a little more, bit more narrow. So I think from that perspective, I feel uh, e-commerce has always been a really huge play here. Uh, people, are, people are coming online really, really fast. Most people have uh, either feature or smartphones here. Most people have a, maybe more than a single phone here either uh, also. So I feel uh, the e-commerce opportunity has, has really taken off in India. Uh, that's one. Uh, the other thing that is really interesting is fintech. Uh, recently, Indian government recently introduced something called as the uh, UIADI, which is basically our digital you know, back-end for all transactions. So uh, we have an equivalent of a social security number called Aadhaar card um, that is attached to a bunch of other things that allows you to do peer-to-peer transactions really quickly, really fast, really efficiently. Um, so those things are leading to a bunch of very interesting things in the fintech space. On the payment side, um, on the transaction between bank side, um, or even like, uh, you know, on the e-commerce side, things have become a lot easier to do. Uh, a lot of new companies are coming in and opening up uh, new avenues to invest your money. Uh, for example, like, you know, wealth management was not a thing in India at all. Insurance was not a thing in India at all, like 10 years ago. Um, I didn't grow up with a health insurance or a house insurance or a car insurance, but these days everybody I know seems to have one of the three, um, often all three. So those things um, were not popular, and now with the whole digital revolution that is happening with the, all the back end and the infrastructure layer being put in place, um, those, those kind of companies are coming up very often. So that's another huge opportunity. Um, besides this, on the B2B space, um, we are seeing a lot of these small and medium you know, businesses, you know, what we call Kirana stores. You know, they're like mom and pop shops that are on every street corners, you know, like in villages, tier three, tier four cities, as well as tier one and tier two cities. They have all been operating in a hyper-local manner completely, you know, um, manually. Like, there is no digitization of their businesses, either in terms of tracking, you know, supplies, tracking demand, in terms of, in terms of providing credit to the people who come uh, to buy things from them. Those are all done on pieces of paper, you know, or verbally or things like that. So now we see a lot of interaction between, you know, the buyer and seller happening in hyper-local groups over WhatsApp, for example. Like, people are trying to... Uh, communicate with their customers over WhatsApp, offer coupons or offer, you know, new exciting things that they are sort of making available uh, over WhatsApp. That's that's something that's happening quite a lot. So all this hyper-local commerce is coming up. Um, also, things like providing credit, like credit is a big deal in India. Like people used to just go to these shops because they have built trust with the, with the, with the shop owners there. And they will just say, uh, hey, can I just take this, you know, I want to, Deep, uh, a, a, a bag of sugar, and I'll pay tomorrow, right? And that used to be very okay. Uh, people would just write it down on a piece of paper, and then tomorrow you come back, or maybe a week later, and you pay off everything you have taken on, on borrowed uh, capital. And that was something that was happening on pieces of paper, and we invested in a company that is digitizing that platform. Like, it is providing a platform for, for sellers to sort of 
digitize the credit they're offering to their customers. So through those things, I think a lot of innovation is sort of, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of innovation in the SME markets, uh, in the SME marketplace that is very, very India-centric, uh, very interesting. So India is such a huge market with like loads and loads of potential. Um, I just come from, came from Southeast Asia where you know, the likes of Alibaba, Tencent are investing incredible amounts of money. Do you see them also doing the same and having the same level of interest in India? And how would, you know, say VC firms compete against these very well-funded behemoths? So uh, I'll answer your second question first. I think um, I think of VC or, or venture capital as an industry as a combination of uh, capital, which is, you know, the money you give to the uh, startups, um, plus Council, which is where you kind of advise how to grow a company uh, from zero to one dollar and then beyond, and connections, right? So that's like where you have your local network, you have local knowledge uh, that is useful. There's a fourth category which is coming up quite a lot now. It's a portfolio of venture services, so helping the uh, the helping the startup recruit from the market, uh, helping them, you know, maybe do product strategy, pricing strategy. Uh, helping them make the first sale, you know, through through the connections that you guys make uh, on behalf of the startups. Things like that are becoming a lot more important than they were five, ten years ago. Um, so the local VCs have a unique advantage that they have been local. They know what kind of company would need what kind of personnel. So they have the relationships that are fairly deep. So they can come in and help really, really quickly in things like rooting or, you know, matchmaking of, you know, uh, supply and demand for a particular product a startup is creating. Uh, that will be hard for an outsider venture capital firm, which is why venture capital is a local industry. It's a very local industry. Uh, you kind of live where you invest and, and you grow. Um, so that's one thing that I think local VCs would differentiate themselves on. Uh, to answer a, a different question around, like there's of course the soft banks of the world that are coming in with large, large checks. You know, I think they will certainly have a huge impact on the venture industry as a whole, and they already are having a huge impact. Um, which is also a reason why a lot of the VCs are also raising larger rounds because it's, a, it's a part of it is protectionist, but part of it is also what the market is demanding, obviously. So you see how that ecosystem evolves. Um, it's not clear to me. Uh, coming back to your first question about Chinese, specifically Chinese investors coming into India, yeah, we see a, we see a bit of that. India is a huge market. It is an open market. Anybody can, can come and play. Um, so certainly Chinese investors are coming in and, you know, looking at companies in various spaces. I've seen, especially I've seen um, interest in the social media space. That's a huge deal in China. I think India is sort of evolving in similar, on similar lines. So that's where I see a lot of interest. But, you know, there's certainly more to that, yeah. I, I'd highly recommend uh, anyone to read Heman's article on Medium where he talked about his decision framework about hmm. returning to India. So <laughs> lots of great things there, like uh, his where to die decision. Uh, but Heman, can you talk about the career gap framework that you wrote about, uh, specifically as it applied to yourself when you were uh, in the Valley, uh, thinking about your next career move? I grew up as an engineer, like most Indians do, but I actually was lucky enough to actually like engineering from the get-go. Uh, did my undergrad in engineering, and then then a postgrad in engineering, and then I worked as an engineer and a product manager for a tech company, doing both hardware and software. During those six years of you know, basically working in an R and D lab, I realized that I was not really using both parts of my brain. I have a fairly creative mind as well, 
Um, and I thought maybe something that is more even-handed in both you know, talking to customers, partners, as well as doing core R&D would be interesting. So I moved into a product management role. And after that, I did an MBA at Cambridge in 2011 and 12. Fantastic experience. Uh, through that, I got into Google uh, in the Silicon Valley, and I moved there after uh, my, my, my MBA and then stayed there for almost six years, five of which I spent at Google, and then the last one year I spent at Andreessen Horowitz as a venture capitalist. And now I'm in India. So I've seen a lot of, uh, trans- I've transitioned quite a lot. I've re- I kind of reinvented my career path quite a lot. And the way I always thought about it, and this could have always gone multiple ways, is that uh, I, I, you have to have a vision for what you want to do in the next five years. That, you know, everybody has their own parameter here. Some people think really, really long term, 10 years or whatever. For me, five years was the threshold beyond which I just could not really have a clear picture of what I wanted to do. Uh, and this this is something that it was all wasn't always true. Like the vision was always not very clear. But you know, by the by, it was just mostly what I understood to be that I wanted to be true in the, in the next five years. As an engineer, I thought I would I wanted to do something on the business side because that's what seemed exciting. And what I lacked at the time was how to speak the language. Um, you know, how to really understand finance uh, strategy. I didn't really have a broad enough view of the industry in general. And uh, I was a good engineer, but I, there was no way for me to transition into a good good business guy, so to speak. So walking back, I, you do an analysis on what are the things that you think you really need to understand to get to what you would want to be, where you want to be in five years. For me, it was essentially boiled down to a bunch of things which could all be met by an MBA. Um, could I have learned that on on my own job? You know, yeah, I, I think I could have. But MBA comes with a lot of other benefits that that were not transferable. You know, that were not applicable while working in a job. And plus, also, you need to get out of your job one year and then you know just do a crash course of sorts, which is an MBA, or you spend three years in the job learning the skills. So the, I just chose the MBA there. After the MBA, uh, Google was a fantastic experience. I started doing investments for Google, you know, f- after my second year there, just I just kind of ended up falling into that uh, that role that I, that involved some kind of investing, uh, small scale investing. I really liked it. Uh, at that time, I was deciding, do I? I was always already thinking of going back to India, but in my career, I think the big gap that I had was um, I didn't know how to manage people. Like I had, I never really led a large team. I had never owned a PNL. Right. So if you want to be a CEO, for example, that was not the goal, but if you really think about it like that, if you want to be a CEO, uh, the skills that I really lacked to be a good CEO was uh, the empathy and, and the leadership to, to lead a large team uh, and how to understand market dynamics so you can own a PL successfully over, over the long term. I didn't know how to, how to do either of those. To get to that, I, f- I feel like I had to start somewhere. And... Um, that's where India sort of started, you know, coming into my mind because in India it's much easier to sort of lead a much larger team than in the U.S. It's just just organically easier than India to do that, and as a result of that, you can also have possibilities of owning P&L. So that was that was the way I was thinking about it. Meanwhile, I did investments for Google and really liked it, and. Then I sort of started thinking about, do I want to be a CEO? Do I want to be a VC? You can do both, of course, you know, sequentially. But I, I figured that if I get the right opportunity to be a VC before, you know, um, 
uh, let's say, becoming a CEO or finding my own company, I would take the chance. And that happened, and that has ended up falling into that. As a VC, what I think about now, five years from now, like what would make me a successful VC? That's also a combination of things. It's a mix of uh, having access to the right kind of network, which essentially you know, evolves into the right kind of deal flow for a, for, for a VC. Uh, experience in growing a company from zero to one and then one to one million and 100 and then billion, right? Uh, that's an experience that a VC needs to have. How do you sort of grow the board? How do you have the right kind of uh, organizational structure? How do you handle crisis in a company which happen almost on a weekly basis at that stage? So that's, it. So that's something that you've got to learn. And, uh, and finally, like, you have to really have a very long-term view of the industry. You have to really understand the market, live in the market, talk to people. Um, those, are, those are typically a new VC for, a, for an industry or for a, for a region would have to pick up. So that's where I'm thinking about my gaps today. Like, how do you build the right kind of network? How do you, you know, learn how to grow a company from zero to one and then slowly from one to 100? And then how do you sort of have a really good long-term view of the market? I have a bit of all three, uh, but not where I want to be. So my next five years are going to have to be spent getting really good at all these three things. So that's the way I think about the, what, I, what gap do I have from where I am today to where I want to be five years from now? And what can I do? Where should I invest? In whom should I invest time in? Which kind of companies do I want to invest money in? Which will teach me all these three skills really, really quickly is what I would prioritize. Hewan, you wrote a fascinating list of something like 50 books that you feel people definitely need to read. And I have to confess, I'm still working my way down on this. I just want to find out from you, you know, what what are you reading right now? What, is there a specific book that, that you find really that's you know, really captured your, your imagination and time? That's uh, funny, because the answer to that is not what you probably would expect. Uh, the book that I'm reading right now is actually called The Three-Body Problem. The uh, Three-Body Problem. Yeah, it's a, it's a Chinese author. It's a science fiction book. Uh, still very early into it. I, I started reading it because I love science fiction. I just love the whole imagination in science fiction. Um, this is a book that kind of involves, you know, really advanced sci-fi with what you could call sociopolitical, you know, complexities specific to China. You know, and it kind of goes through multiple ages and eons. So that's kind of interesting for me because it gives you a really large scale perspective on how that country or that society evolved, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, Obama really recommended it, so, which is what I read about, you know, this book. And then, uh, then I re- sort of read some research, and everybody who has read it really liked it. Um, so I began reading it. I'm still, like, very, very early into the book, but I'm really enjoying it so far. Mm. I'll definitely have to pick, my, pick up a copy and start brushing up on my Mandarin yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> on, that, on the note of uh, 50 books, right? So I was just, there was a very fascinating... Uh, did you read uh, f- uh, the Farnham blog, the FS.com, I think? It's, it's, a, it's a blog that uh, is written by a gentleman, I forget his name, but he, he writes amazingly crisp articles about almost everything under the sun. And he had this two-hour podcast with Naval Ravikant, uh, of the, he was the founder of AngelList, about how he reads books. And that was a very interesting article. I highly recommend everybody to go check it out. Uh, it's online. And uh, what really struck me is that Naval is almost uh, uh, unrepentant in his uh, disregard for books he doesn't like. So he will pick up 10 books in a week, 
and uh, he will immediately discard anything that he does not like. Like he, there is no compulsion to sort of finish a book, which I feel very strongly for. Like I'm like I should give this book a chance. I've spent two hours reading, I don't know, whatever, hundred pages, and then I should there are hundred more. I should just finish it. But he does not feel that way. That's one. Uh, second thing is even the, even even in the books that he actually likes, he does not read every single word. He will read, he'll go to chapter one, doesn't like it, whatever. He'll skip chapter three, read a bit of that, maybe skip paragraphs, maybe skip sentences, maybe skip entire chapters, and that's how he finishes a book. And he claims, I don't know whether I would feel the same way after I, if I practice this, he claims to learn almost 80 to 90% of what a book has to you know, teach by skipping things that he feels are unnecessary for him. Either he knows it, or he doesn't care about it, or it's not relevant to him. So that's how he's able to sort of really quickly read hundreds of books a year. Um, but you know, since you were bringing up the topic of 50 books, I'm actually struggling to finish a few every month myself. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort of think about how do I do that, and this seems like a good approach to sort of test out this FYI. Yeah, I'll, I'll try that approach, although I'm kind of in, like you. I, I feel like I need yeah. almost to respect the author yeah. by reading <laughs> yeah. through yeah. almost every yeah. word. Um, but I, th- I also find it really interesting that actually a lot of top business people, you know, if you look, and founders, they, they're compulsive uh, book readers. And so I think that's something that everyone should rediscover in a way. In, in this age when everything is getting bite-sized on a, on a small mobile screen or else you just... Yeah. Yeah, even here, like on Fridays, I do not take any meetings. Like as a VC, you take too many meetings, honestly. And then on Fridays, my rule is to not take any meetings. Eventually, I would probably evolve into at least half the day I will read a book. Like not newspapers, not Twitter, not articles online, not blogs, a book, any book. That's the way I'm, that's that's what I'm hoping to be able to do. Uh, So wish me luck. (laughs) I was very grateful to Hemant for sharing that overview of his career. He mentioned several resources at the end, so if you're interested, the blog he was talking about is Farnham Street. That's F-A-R-N-A-M. You can read it at fs.blog. The podcast he mentioned was The Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish. That's Parrish spelt with two R's. And the episode with Naval Ravikant was posted February 2017, and it's called The Angel Philosopher. These are great resources, and I highly recommend you spend the time to look at and listen to. If you're interested in a career in VC, then do also listen to uh, the previous episode where I spoke with Carol Cheung about her work at Cambridge Innovation Capital. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating to help others discover this show. Till next time, this is Conrad Chua on Changing Careers.